Okay, well, good morning, PCC. How are you? Anybody get uh, any sun the past couple of days? I hope so, because apparently it's winter again, so I don't know if uh, that means the world is ending or if this is just life in New Jersey. Um, hard to tell the difference sometimes, but... <laughs> Got him. Um, this morning we're continuing our series on Ephesians. Uh, for one more week before kind of taking a break and, and focusing on Lent and on Easter um, for five or six weeks. Um, the reason we're going through Ephesians, our hope with this series is that uh, as a... Thank you, God, for the light. Um, our hope with this series is, is that as a church, we would catch uh, a new vision of what it means to be the church, or the importance of community and unity and what that looks like, and that focus is going to become clear this morning as well. I invite you to open Bibles, if you have them, or you can find one around you, to Ephesians 4.17. If you have phones, fire up your Bible app, or you can look it up online. We're going to be sticking in this passage, and I really encourage you to have it in front of you so you can fact-check me afterwards. I'm going to be reading from the ESV if you're using the Bible app. And I have a confession to make before we get started. Uh, Speaking of community, uh, about a week and a half ago, my small group Bible study went through this passage with me. Uh, We kind of collected insights and stuff together. So if this uh, sermon has an impact on you, makes a difference, then then props to uh, my small group. And uh, if anything that I say really ticks you off, I can give you their emails and you can... Uh, just talk to them directly. Um, pressure's off me, baby. This is great. Okay, Ephesians four seventeen through 24. I'm going to read it for us to get started. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Now this I say and insist in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're going to break this down and go through this verse by verse. In verse 17, it starts with this appeal, this I say and insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It says testify up there, doesn't it? Don't believe that, it's insist. So this is the summary, the main point of everything that's going to follow in chapter 4 and everything that we're going to talk about today. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And it's kind of a shame that in 2017 we don't really have, like, Gentiles around anymore. I mean, well, technically most of us are Gentiles, but I wish there was, like, this category of people and I could just say, don't be like them. All right, see you next Sunday. Um, be much shorter, we'd be out of here into the 40-degree weather, but, but we don't. Um, But actually, the context is kind of the same, right? So as most of us are probably aware, um, in the Bible and and in the first century in Israel, uh, Gentile meant basically like a a non-Jewish person. We're we're familiar with that, right? Um, 
What's, what's interesting is, as far as we know, the church that Paul is writing to in Ephesus, these were primarily non-Jewish Christians. So when he, when he says Gentiles, he, he, he doesn't mean non-Jews. We can take him to kind of mean, um, you must no longer walk as unbelievers do. Um, Gentile, that category, kind of take, took on a definition for Israel, meaning like the, the, the nations around us. <laughs> Um, the people out there. Um, and so in, in the new community of the church of the first century, Gentiles kind of come, it, at least here, comes to mean kind of unbelievers. Okay, but what does unbelievers mean, Ryan? Well, I'm glad you asked, hypothetical congregation member. I'm going to tell you. Paul goes on in detail and describes it. He says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Uh, This is difficult to parse out, but I'm going to kind of do it in reverse order here. What he's saying is the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they have hard hearts. Um, they, They have hardened their hearts. And this leads to spiritual ignorance. They don't know God. They don't know God's ways. And so they are alienated. They are cut off. They are shut out from the life of God. They are unable to take part in that. This leads to a darkened understanding, a futility of mind. This is a pretty picture, right? The word futility there, by the way, if you're familiar with the Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes, Uh, there's a common refrain in Ecclesiastes that says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity and a chasing after wind. It's a really upbeat book. Um, You'd enjoy it. Um, But that that word vanity, that concept, is the same word as futility here, and it basically means um, pointlessness, uh, meaninglessness, emptiness, you know, futility. It, It all amounts to nothing. The wind takes it away. So these unbelievers are hard-hearted, they're spiritually ignorant of God, they don't know him, and so their minds are darkened and characterized by futility. This, this, is, this is strong language, these are strong claims, and it gets stronger in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They are hard-hearted and callous, they've lost sensitivity and are dead to feeling, so they've given themselves up to sensuality. Today we almost always assign to the word sensuality a, a sexual connotation. But uh, what's in view here is broader than that. Um, we, we would want to say it's just kind of like the enjoyment of sensory pleasure, the enjoyment of, of, of earthly, just kind of like non-spiritual pleasure, things I can sense, things I can touch and taste and smell. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They don't just happen to do bad stuff in ignorance. They passionately pursue it. And there's kind of a sad irony here in the text because they're described as callous, unfeeling, but also pushing after sensuality. A common experience for many of us when we go through seasons of depression is to feel numb. I and and others I've known in my life who feel this kind of numbness. Sometimes we feel compelled to kind of throw ourselves in to to all kinds of sensory sensory pleasures because we so desperately just want to feel something. We're callous, but we're chasing after that sensation. 
It's, it's not a pretty picture that Paul is painting here. These unbelievers don't know God. They experience futility of mind. And, and, and shut off from God, they just they indiscriminately pursue all manner of impurity. They embrace without a second thought the physical, the worldly, whatever is in front of them, whatever is around them that they think might give them pleasure. That's all they know. And I think we've all experienced that at some point, and some of us experience that daily, believer or not. But, verse 20 comes. But that is not the way you learned Christ, Paul says. So he's established how the Gentiles live, and Paul brings us back to his point, don't be like them, by saying, this is not the way you learned Christ. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? Learned Christ. This isn't learned math or learned the cheat codes to Mortal Kombat. This this is something different. Uh, In our Bible study think tank that we had, we made sense of this by relating it to marriage. Uh, Well, someone did. Brenda, do you want to say what you said that night? You'll let me do it? It was something about what learning about Bryson is like learning, you know, the, the mixture of hues in his eyes and the way he first wakes up in the morning and I don't know. She said it much better. I was very moved, but I'm going to spare all of us by not going down that road anymore. Um, but the same thing I think could be true of a friendship or, or a parent-child relationship. To learn another person involves learning stuff about them, um, but it goes deeper than that. It means knowing them intimately, understanding the way they think and why, being able to finish each other's sandwiches. Yes. That's from Frozen. I'm not an idiot. Um, <laughs> sandwiches. But that is not the way you learned Christ. I think, we, I, I think that's weird language, but we understand kind of what he's talking about there. We've had a close relationship in life. We, we know what it means to learn a person. And uh, in verse 21, this learning language continues. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him is the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So this learning language continues. You heard about him. We're taught in him. The truth is in him. Your minds are renewed. Jesus is the subject matter of learning. Jesus is the content. He is also, in a weird way, the means of learning. We are taught in Jesus. So it's all wrapped up in this person, not like a system, not a a set of facts to learn. A person. Kind of cool. I don't have much else of a point there. Anyway, by the way, when he says, uh, assuming you have heard, rhetorically what he's saying here is, is uh, you have heard. I am assuming that you have heard. He, he's, not, he's not unsure about that. Um, that's going to be important. So what we get from Paul is this dichotomy set up, right? Uh, on both sides, we have all this mind, all this learning language woven through. And on one side, you have the Gentiles who have futility of mind, a darkened understanding, ignorance of the life found in God and of God himself. And on the other side, you have believers who have learned Christ, have been taught in him, who have had their futile minds renewed in him. And and so kind of what he is essentially saying, if we could boil it down and make it as simple as possible, what what he's saying to these believers and saying to us is is quite simply, uh, you know better. These Gentiles over here, see them, the way they live, the way they see the world. You can't be like them because you've learned Christ and you know better. And presumably, 
everyone in here has been a child at, at one point in their lives, right? Most, most of us at least. George, have you? You still are. Okay, yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say it, but since you did. Presumably, we were all children at one point, and we heard this fateful phrase spoken to us, right? You know better. You should know better. Mama ain't raised no fool. You know, that, that kind of thing. Like, an appeal to, to, you know this. You know not to do this. You know better than to write on the walls with permanent marker. You know better than to eat all of your Halloween candy in one day. Those are actually both taken from my wife's life. Um, it's, it's good that they don't let adults trick-or-treat anymore, or she probably would still do that, and we'd be in the hospital. So, um, <laughs> Whatever it was that you did as a kid, um, you've heard this phrase, and it's a powerful phrase because there's nothing you can say back to it, right? You know? You can't say, I, don't, I didn't know better. You just say, no, you're right. <laughs> Dad, I, I, I do know better than to root for the Eagles. I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, just messed up in the head and hormones. I don't know. Just, it's tough. We do know better, but sometimes we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded not to walk that way, that that's not who I am, not anymore. So when we look at verse 24, it's not a new command to these people to having put off the old self, put on the new self with this clothing metaphor. No, we trace that back to verse 21, and we read it to be, you were taught in Christ to put off the old self, to put on the new. This has happened. You, you've done that. You are new. That's what the appeal of you know better is. The appeal is to the reality of who the person is. Uh, we've all seen The Lion King, right? Who hasn't seen The Lion King? Oh my goodness, okay. Tony, come over after church and we'll handle this. I got Blu-ray. Um, it's the greatest, I mean, it's the cinematic achievement of the 20th century, I would say. Um, so in The Lion King, Simba is a lion and he's the son of the king, Mufasa, and and. Mufasa's killed, and Simba is exiled to the Pride Lands, and he, he takes on a carefree life with Timon and Pumbaa, the meerkat and the warthog, uh, and grows up and just kind of eats grubs and walks on logs and sings songs and dives in pools. And I don't need to describe the whole movie to you. Um, and one day, uh, Rafiki, the baboon, um, he finds him and he says, he says, I know your father. And, um, and, <laughs> and, uh, Simba says, I'm sorry to tell you, but my father's dead. And he says, no, no, I know your father. Come, I'll show him, show him to you. And so Simba chases Rafiki through the brush, and, and, and they come to this, this pool of water, and, and Rafiki says, look down there. I won't do the Rafiki voice anymore. Um, he, says, he says, look. <laughs> Maybe one more time. <laughs> he looks down into the water, and, and, and Simba just sees his reflection, and he's like, oh, this was a, a scam. You know, this is, that's just my reflection. Uh, and the waters kind of shimmer a little bit, and then he sees, he sees his father's face. And then, and then the clouds roll in and, and open up, and this ghostly, oh, th- wow, hey, Mufasa. Um, there's Mufasa, and Mufasa appears in the clouds majestically. And, and does anyone remember what Mufasa says to Simba? <laughs> Kale, what was that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Glad your voice finally dropped, man. That's uh, <laughs> exactly. Remember who you are. 
James Earl Jones. It's like, ugh, none of us can recreate that in this, in this place. Remember who you are. You are my son. You are the one true king. Essentially, he tells him, I insist that you must no longer walk as the warthog and the meerkat do in the futility of their hakuna matata philosophy. You need to get off your butt and get back to the pride lands and handle business for your people. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Uh, Simba is lost. Simba is confused. Simba needs a reminder. But the content of the reminder was quite simply an appeal to who Simba is. He doesn't need, even need to say, get back there. He just says, remember who you are, Simba. The true king. I bet you didn't think you'd be compared to a cartoon lion this morning, but here we are. This, uh... Craig mentioned this idea a few weeks ago, and, and it comes up a lot in Paul's letters. Um, what, what's happening here is not a command to be a certain way, but a reminder that, that you are a certain way, right? Uh, and so act in accordance with that. Philippians 3.16 puts it this way. It says, let us simply hold true to what we have attained. Nothing new, just like remember who you are, or the distance you've come, the changes God has worked in you. And, and what have we attained? What have we learned? Christ. We know him. We've been taught in him. We've been made new by him. And so we don't walk as the Gentiles do anymore. Our minds aren't futile or darkened anymore. We, we know God, but every so often we need a reminder a lot of the New Testament, especially the letters, are, are rem- those kind of reminders. And, and why do we need a reminder? Um, I think this hits on, on a paradox of the Christian life uh, in the sense that we are all new creations. We've all, you know, who are Christians have been changed, have learned Christ, have been made new. But at this moment, you know, that's nice to say, but it certainly doesn't seem that way, right? We're not all the way there. Oscar Kuhlmann, a 20th century theologian, he uses a World War II uh, metaphor for understanding this tension. He writes that Christians find themselves between D-Day and V-Day. And uh, if you're a history buff, I'm about to butcher some things and you can come see me after the, after the service. I'm going to do my very best. So D-Day, June 6, 1944, this was the day that the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and made their first significant kind of push into Europe, right? Um, the importance of D-Day is that, uh, looking back on that, both sides of the war kind of acknowledge that that is the battle in which the war was won, right? Um, essentially, from, you know, that was decision day. That was the day that, that um, the war was decided, and, and Lord knows what would have happened if, if the Allied forces had lost at D-Day. Um, I don't know. I don't know history stuff. Um, but... This is June 6, 1944, but the Axis powers, you know, didn't officially surrender until May of 1945, almost a year later. And in between D-Day and V-Day, there were still plenty of battles and things that, that we wouldn't want to call formalities, but the war had essentially been decided. And that space in between is where we are. You know, and so we need Paul's encouragement to, to, to keep pressing on in the hope and with the memory that, yes, we have already won, Christ has already won. We've been made new. We've been liberated in a sense, but there are still battles to fight. Maybe we forget this because unlike the troops on D-Day, we, we feel more confident maybe that, that God has in fact 
one, and we rest on our laurels a little bit. Uh, That's a different sermon, so we'll leave that for now. The point is that we're living in that tension. We know we've been made new creations. We don't really feel that all the time, and, and so we need reminders like these. Reminders like these are very important. Communion is another one of those, and there's significance in the fact that we took communion before the sermon today so that we remember who we are up front, you know, that that we who are believers are already accepted, that Christ has already won the victory in the world and in our hearts, and it's in light of that that we read Paul's words this morning. It's light of that, that that that's what Paul is appealing to, that the communion and what we share in Christ is, is, is not a past tense reality, but that's it precedes what we talk about here. You know, therefore, in light of communion, in light of that, we hear Paul's commands and exhortations. That's important for us. And, and we've been made new, but it's so easy to forget that, right? Because we find ourselves in a world that's swimming in, in the other direction from that. And before we know it, we're caught up in that tide it's so, it, that's, that's the default. That's what's going to happen if we don't have these reminders that we don't try. We're, we're going to be carried off with that. And Paul says, remember. You know better than that. You're called to swim a different way. And therefore, we get to verse 25 and we get a big therefore. And as a church, we know that when we read, therefore, we we skip right over it and keep on reading. Right, okay, great. <laughs> so, so the next passage starts with a therefore, and then Paul lists off uh, this list of what this new life should look like, the ways in which our lives should look different than the lives of the Gentiles. But before we run through those, I just have one quick and, and really important caveat for us this morning. Um, we do this all the time, uh, you know, in, in church. We we run through the Christians should do X, Y, and Z. And, and a lot of you are like, oh my gosh, we get it. We get it. We can read the Bible. We know we got to do stuff. But, but listen, hypothetical disgruntled congregation member. Catch me outside. No, just kidding. Um, listen, it's important. <laughs> if the youth were here, they would have laughed a lot at that. Um, it's important for us to remember that This isn't about becoming better people for our own sake. Uh, Paul's, Paul's point here is important. You know, you know, we need to not look like the Gentiles, but not for the sake of our salvation, not even for the sake of our own well-being. I mean, because our salvation we, has been won already, and, and our well-being is not our primary concern. It's important to not look like the Gentiles for the sake of the Gentiles. The world needs to see the church being not the world. The world needs to see a group of people who together are swimming against the current whose life sticks out. The world needs to see people whose actions suggest these people know something I don't. These people know someone I don't. Therefore, we read verse 25 and following as a call to countercultural living. At every point, he's reinforcing the idea we can't walk like them anymore. 
Because out of love for the Gentiles, we can't afford to live like the Gentiles. So we, you and I, we need to be a community, if you read on, it says, we need to be a community that speaks the truth with one another, for we are members of one another. There is a vision here of a group of people that is so intimately connected that they can't afford to be dishonest to each other. That they can't afford to let dishonesty or guardedness or bitterness creep in and fester in their church. Goes on and says, we need to be a community that no longer steals, i.e., no longer is concerned with only or primarily their own material needs, but works hard and provides for those around them that are in need. We need to be a community that lets no corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And if you don't know what corrupting talk is, it's anything anyone says on the internet ever. Seriously, though, we, we, we are called to be a community of people who even in our words, we think of other people before ourselves. We think, is, is what I'm going to say right now for their good or for my good? When we look at these examples, we kind of see one theme kind of emerge. You know, these, the, the Gentile world tends to be self-interested. That's where their hearts lead them. That's where our hearts lead us. There's enormous pressure to go upstream, to, to, to steal in the sense of mostly focusing on our prosperity and financial well-being instead of and maybe at the expense of the well-being of others. I'm so guilty of this every day because it's so tempting and because the rest of the world is going to be totally fine with it. Literally no one is going to fault you for taking care of yourself. No one. You will meet zero resistance in doing that. Why? We've got to ask ourselves why. Our hearts lead us maybe to be dishonest, to harbor resentments and anger, to not have the courage to speak the truth with people because it's easier to just hold them at a distance and go about our weeks. I mean, there again, nobody in the world is going to tell you that's a bad thing. No one's going to tell you, yeah, just go, just don't, don't rock the boat, just, you know, tolerate everyone and, and, and then go home and turn on Netflix and it'll be totally fine. No one has a qualm with that, but, they, but, they, but they, they would think twice, they would notice a group of people who are so connected that they can be lovingly honest with others for their benefit. A group of people who trust each other enough to be vulnerable and honest and still be a community at the end of the day. I want us all to dream of what that would look like and what it could be here to have a community that, that, is, that is, trusts each other enough to just be open with each other and to know at the end of the day we're all still going to be here. That these relationships would be unconditional. Our hearts lead us to all kinds of corrupting talk. We might even twist the last challenge and say, I'm just being honest. I'm just keeping it real. I'm keeping it 100. Again, the youth would have laughed at that. But do we really have concern in our honesty for building people up? Because there's a difference between speaking the truth and and the Christian phrase is speaking the truth in love. But I would interpret that as being like speaking the truth for the benefit of the person you're speaking the truth to. What we say, what we don't say, what we post on Facebook, what we don't post on Facebook, are we motivated, motivated by the well-being of others or by something else? 
Do we want others and our fellow Christians to be built up in Christ, encouraged to pursue Him more faithfully, to seek justice and holiness? Are we encouraged to seek and speak the truth for the sake of the gospel? Or do we just want to make ourselves feel good by taking a stand or planting a flag or asserting our opinion because the world tells us we have the right to? Everyone tells you you have the right to assert your opinion. And Christians should consider the effect their opinion is having on others. It's hard right now. Politics, our world is is super polarized. This room is incredibly politically diverse. And that's awesome. That's something that we we really celebrate and want to like maintain. In the coming months and years, will what we say be motivated by love or by scoring points? By staking out territory. When we speak out against things, which we're going to have to do, when we speak out in defense of things, which we're going to have to do, why are we doing it? Will this be a church where we can be honest about disagreements, where we can safely challenge each other because we trust that we're only interested in loving, we're only interested in building each other up? Paul is calling us to be that. Paul is appealing to us and saying, we need to be that. We need to remember who we are and why we are here. We have been made new. We have been overhauled. We have been changed. And we celebrate that every Sunday because that, we cannot exhaust the awesomeness of that fact. We could never worship and praise God enough for what he has done in all of our lives. And we're still being changed. This church thing is messy and difficult and sometimes pretty ugly. But this morning, let's take a take the reminder of why we've been made new, why we are different. If we're made new, if we're different, we need to act like it. We need to swim upstream and make people notice and invite them to join us in this new life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we approach you with uh, joy this morning, um, celebrating everything that you've done, celebrating your utter faithfulness when we utterly fail to follow you. Even as believers, even as recipients of your love, we so often fail to to return that love to you and, and to express that love to the world. And and we just praise you for your spirit which works in us. Praise you for the Holy Spirit which empowers us, which gives us wisdom, which which leads us out into the world to be a light there. And we pray that that would happen. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on us. It is solely by that spirit that we are made new creations, that we are made into beautiful things. Even when so many of us look inside ourselves and we don't see anything beautiful, but you, Lord, are so faithful. Faithful to use broken earthen vessels. We pray that you would do that in the life of our church. You would do that at at our jobs, at our schools. 
We pray, Lord, most of all this morning for our world. Show us what our responsibility is to the people around us. Show us what our responsibility is to, to our country, to, to the globe, to... Show us what our next steps are and how to be obedient and walk in those. We just praise you so much for the love you've poured out on us, Lord, and the patience and the mercy. May our actions be a response to that. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.